Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping our special holiday edition on Tuesday this week at 10.30 a.m. on November 20th. As always, news can happen fast, and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hello, everybody. Stephanie Armour of The Wall Street Journal. Hello. Happy holiday. And Anna Edney of Bloomberg News. Good morning. And this week, instead of our usual extra credits, we'll be offering up our favorite health policy nerd book recommendations just in time for the holidays. So stay tuned. They're not all nerdy. (laughs) We'll get there. Also, for the end of the year, we're going to do another Ask Us Anything. So if you have a burning health policy question, you can email it to us at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. We'll tell you more about this in the coming weeks. Okay, let us get to the news. It is Thanksgiving week, and for the past several years, that has coincided with open enrollment for both Medicare and the Affordable Care Act. This year, Medicare open enrollment goes through December 7th, and ACA enrollment in most states, although not some of the big ones, goes through December 15th. I thought this would be a good week to catch up with where we are and to remind people who know about these things to remind their relatives at family gatherings this week. So what's the latest we know about how open enrollment in the ACA is going? Stephanie, who's, who's looked it's, at the numbers? It's going, but it's it's not at the level it was last year um, for the federal exchange. But you will note that a lot of the states are that run their own exchanges are pretty robust. And I think that California, obviously, yeah, being the exactly. biggest one. Colorado right. is up. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So it remains to be seen if that will offset um, some of the lower numbers so far on the ACA open, uh, federal exchange. Um, I do think one of the things to have to keep in mind is that the election put a lot of attention on health care. And it's quite possible that people were sort of um, distracted by all the election noise when it comes to signing up. Plus, we also know that they've really cut enrollment and outreach, which is something Democrats want to look at uh, starting in January. So all of that plays into this. But I do think it's slightly lower, at least on the federal exchange. It's about it's running at about 12 or 13 percent lower. However, mm-hmm. we're really only in the second. Well, the numbers were after two weeks. That's right. There were two yeah. numbers. So you can't yet conclude that's where we'll end up, could end up better, and it could end up worse. The The big surge of enrollment is usually, you know, we are all human beings, we procrastinate. The, the surge is usually closer to the end. It's not a great start, but we don't know if that means it's not a great end. I wonder, Anna, if, you know, last year there was so much attention because the the Trump administration, you know, messed around with the, the open enrollment by cutting off the payments for cost sharing reductions. Congress was trying to decide if it was going to do something about that, ultimately did not. But there was just so much attention to what was going on. I wonder if some of the sort of more robust than expected enrollment last year was because it was just so much in the news. And as Stephanie points out, it's just not this year. Right. It wasn't. Healthcare was in the news, but not in the same way. You know, open enrollment wasn't the the big deal. It was, you know, is Medicare for all going to be something that progressives pull through or we'll are pre-existing <laughs> conditions going to be taken away? Um, so people weren't looking the same way at how they need to sign up for coverage if they need to through the exchanges, federal or state. Um, but I think Joanne's right that it's it is very it's early um, and it's it's really hard to tell if this is the way you know if the numbers are going to stay down or if there will be a surge, particularly now that the elections have passed and there you know can be some focus again on that. 
We also don't know why they're down. I mean, yes, there's less outreach, but there was less outreach the last two years. Um, yes, I mean, the mandate's gone. Um, which is a big, yeah. yeah which... The individual mandate, the penalty the, the, will, will not apply in 2019. It's really too, you can guess that that's a factor. We don't really know it's a factor. Or, you know, we'll know more when we see who's in the exchange we'll, um, and who's subsidized. P- people who are likely to not buy insurance because of the, man, the the mandate is no longer there are because the penalty the, the penalty is no longer there. You could theorize that it's going to be the people who don't get subsidies who don't get a lot of subsidy. If you're getting a big subsidy and you're cost sharing covered, the exchange is still a pretty good deal, and you're not in there just because the mandate. You're in there because you're getting affordable health care. So you know it may turn out that the mandate's effect is in the people for whom it's still extremely expensive, and they do go for the short term plans or the HPs or other alternatives, or they go bare. They don't get insured. It's just too soon to know. Plus, there's a tight labor market, which right. you, yeah, right. people, people more people getting, getting employer getting, coverage. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's that's an actually really important point. It's you know that the the number of people who buy their own insurance is that the, is everybody who's left over after employer coverage, after Medicare, after Medicaid, after VA coverage. So it's it's a it's a residual population. It's just been a residual population that's had trouble getting insurance. Right, and the early the preliminary numbers from the CDC on on the uninsurance rate for the the preliminary numbers for early 2018. We don't we won't have the final really great count for a number of months, but it, it was something like still around 8. 8%, which is historically very low. So part of it is because, you know, as we keep saying, the ACA is still here. And, and as Stephanie just pointed out, the job market's tight and more people are working and more people are getting uh, coverage at, the, at their jobs. So overall, you know, the, the big picture is that more Americans are covered. The, you know, the unhappy thing is that we can't stop fighting about it. <laughs> <laughs> and what about Medicare? I know, I know I always did my mom's, you know, Medicare drug coverage for the next year over Thanksgiving weekend. It was just, it was sort of my Thanksgiving weekend chore. So I imagine there'll be a lot of a lot of people talking to a lot of parents and grandparents uh, over the next week about what to do about Medicare. I mean, unlike sort of the... So affordable, all the American yeah. families that are divided politically and can't talk to each other are going to say, okay, let's go sign up for Medicare instead. It's a nice family activity. There you go. <laughs> Julie, that's not what most families do for Thanksgiving. <laughs> I didn't say did it on Thanksgiving. I just said I did it Thanksgiving weekend because I usually had, you know, several several days in which I could, like, do errands that I knew would be time-consuming. But, you know, I would say unlike the, the Affordable Care Act where there are not a ton of choices, although more than I think we were expecting, in Medicare the problem is the opposite. There are so many choices. In and they've been advertising the them. There's a lot yeah. of email going out. They've made a real big push this year to uh, advertise Medicare Advantage and other options. There's a lot of... There's a lot of marketing going on. And, of course, we should say this, that unlike the Affordable Care Act, people with Medicare will have Medicare no matter what they do. The question is whether they want to add drug coverage or change their drug drug coverage or go into Medicare Advantage or, you know, go out of Medicare Advantage. And there's uh, there's an awful lot of pitfalls. There's a lot of people who go into Medicare Advantage, discover they don't like it. If you try to go back out of Medicare Advantage to traditional fee-for-service Medicare, you might not be able to buy supplemental coverage anymore if you have a pre-existing condition, which most people over 65 do. Um, so, I mean, there are there are sort of it's it's not as simple, even even though it's not your coverage that's on the line with Medicare. There's a lot of sort of pitfalls and traps that you have to be careful. And it's of. confusing to try to. I mean, you you know, you did that piece years ago when you were helping your mom. I mean, your mom was a health care writer. You were a health care writer. And you guys had a lot. I remember that you guys had a lot of trouble trying to figure out which Medicare D drug plan was best for her. And I'm thinking, OK, you know, if she can't do it. I'm just going to jump off a bridge when it's my turn. Right? <laughs> I, I will say that over the years, that was the first year and it really was a pain over the years since I did it for so many years for my mom. It did get easier because the Medicare website 
it got better. I mean, that part of it was, you know, you had to go to the trouble of filling in all the drugs and the dosages and the whole thing. But once you did that, first of all, it saved your list, which was awesome. But then it would actually tell you, it would rank the plants, like, here's the one that will cost you the less out of pocket. I keep wondering, you know, if they could do that for the Affordable Care Act. I know there are some who have tried it. I've done a couple of stories on this. It really would make it easier. I mean, it's one of these places where Medicare probably could and should be leading the the private market, but isn't. It was still a tedious task that I didn't look forward to, but Every it's just not they, as good as pumpkin pie. Yeah. Every year they improved a Does little bit. Does that mean you end up changing plans every pretty much every yes. year? It's yeah. A different she plan. ended up play, changing plans pretty much every year. I think there was one year where she didn't change plans. Um, but yeah. And it, so, it, I mean, that's the other thing. It's worth going through even if you're happy with what you have. This is true, obviously, both in the Affordable Care Act and in the Medicare market. Even if you're happy with what you have, with, with what you have, it's worth looking to see whether you could be getting a better deal. Because, I mean, in the case of Medicare Part D, that the, the deals, I mean, you know, they and this is true in the ACA too. You can be talking about thousands of dollars. You know, everybody goes out on Black Friday to save fifty bucks on something. But you know, you could you could spend a couple of hours on your computer and you might save several thousand. Just saying. All right. Uh, I want to catch up on some FDA news that happened late last week. Actually, as we were taping on Thursday, FDA Commissioner Scott Gottlieb made some pretty big moves on the tobacco front, proposing to ban menthol cigarettes outright and proposing to severely limit many flavored vaping liquids that appeal to children and teens. The actions came on the heels of an announcement by the CDC that e-cigarette use among teens more than doubled in just one year to an estimated 3.6 million users. What's Gottlieb's strategy here? So he is, he came out last week with sort of, I, I called it like a plan to have a plan um, because it, you know, he's been wanting to do something. He's been, his rhetoric has been very harsh against e-cigarette companies, particularly um, given this, these rise in, in teen vaping that we've seen that in those numbers he's known for a long time. And he's, we've talked about Juul here, the little, right. little sort of thumb drive looking device. Yes. That, and Juul is extremely popular um, among kids and it's, you know, it's got flavors like mango and and cucumber that they really like um, and just the way it looks. And they figured out sort of a social media campaign as well that has propelled them to the top of e-cigarette makers. Um, and Even so, though they insist they're only it's only for adults who are trying to quit regular cigarettes, right? Yes, that has been that has been their line for sure. And they did um, last week. They said they were going to shut down their Instagram and Facebook accounts um, because you know they're seeing the writing on the wall that Dr. Gottlieb is coming after them. And so, what he said was he's going to propose, and this will you know the agency will probably in a few weeks. He said come out with um, these regulations to restrict those flavored e-cigarettes to um, your adult-only stores, so maybe some of those vape shops that are going to card you when you come in, or online retailers that have heightened age restrictions. And then he went further and he um, said that, you know, flavors are already banned in cigarettes except for menthol. So he said that he was going to also look into proposing a ban on menthol. That won't come until probably 2019, and that would be a draft. And so then the final might not be till 2020. But the you know he said that menthol is something that kids are also you know more likely to use than adults. They're not going for like the the tobacco flavored cigarettes, but some of them are getting hooked on cigarettes through menthol, and so he wanted to go after those as well. So he's he's stepping he's putting out sort of an outline and how he plans to go after this. And people do you know there have been a lot of comments that this is unusual for the Trump administration. Um, he's really 
going, he's really regulating an industry, which yeah, is something are, they haven't these done. These are things that a lot of previous FDA commissioners, I think, would have liked to have done but didn't dare. Yes, yeah. I, I remember talking to um, one of the previous ones, um, Dr. Califf, who was there at the end, near the end of the Obama administration. And he was like, yeah, we, we wanted to do something on, on a lot of this, but we just couldn't get it through the door. And it's by, he was talking about a previous proposal that Dr. Gottlieb did. Um, he's going to look at limiting the amount of nicotine in cigarettes. And um, that proposal kind of seems to have been maybe pushed, not pushed aside indefinitely, but while they're taking care of this e-cigarette issue, that seems to not be as much of a priority. That's, yeah. And that's also been an idea. And menthol, those ideas go back to the 90s. And, and they Although have, they've only had, they, they got the authority in 2009. What, 2009. Right. Yeah. When, well, when some, Congress... right. some of it they got through a Supreme Court decision. I forgot what year that was. I mean, there's been a gradual, there has been a gradual increase in tobacco regulation since the tobacco deal um, was reached in the, in, in the late 90s. Yeah. So there has been greater regulation. And uh, there was not legislation. The, leg- the big legislative push, which was Senator McCain, actually, um, that failed in around 98, 99. Um, I but remember you spent a lot of time I on spent that. a lot of time in the basement of Rayburn, yeah. And uh, <laughs> I eventually emerged. Um, and, and yeah, I covered that for two years. I just don't remember what two years, like late 90s. So there has been regulation. There have been court decisions. There have been regulatory powers. There was, there was some legislation and then a big Tobacco Control Act in 2009. This, the, the debate about menthol has been going on for many years. It's controversial. It is disproportionately smoked by more minorities. More black, The black community smokes more menthol. Um, but... You know, it's a public health issue, and um, it is a gateway. I mean, that's the menthol is what gets them smoking. Then I think the e-cigarettes thing has just come so far so fast as a public health crisis. The fact that so many kids, I mean, the kids who themselves didn't know what this thing was two years ago, mm-hmm. that it's really become, you know, it's just sort of smacked the public health community yeah, in the face. Yeah, I went back and looked at that CDC report last night as I was prepping, and I'm like, I had not realized, A, that the number was that big, or B, that it got that big It got back fast. really fast. And when you look at things like cotton candy flavored e-cigs, you know this is not going for, you know, your 65-year-old male smoker. Or your 40-year-old who's you know, wants to want. I mean, smoking. and I think that's the the idea. That's sort of the the tightrope that he's walking here. Is like there is there's a public health argument to be made that e-cigarettes are safer than regular cigarettes, so they want them to be available to the you know the forty year old who've, who've been smoking who would like to stop. If that really turns out, if the research finds that that is in fact a long term substitute, not just a short term blip, or that you're doing the e-cigs as well as smoking, there's a lot we don't know about it. I mean, for the sake of the conversation, for this particular conversation, let's just say, okay, they are better than smoke, smoking traditional cigarettes. For if you're already a smoker, you're better off with that. Let's just say that. It still doesn't mean that, you know, which is where Gottlieb was. And then this e-cig thing with the kids has happened. And it's middle schoolers, it's high schoolers, and you're hearing more and more. These, are, these have a lot of nicotine in these pods. These yeah. are not like a little whiff. Well, it's I also think- unclear if smoking, you know, e-cigarettes is you know, the best way to get off of smoking right. regular. So there are a lot of other options that don't involve this inhaling of, of vapor um, that potentially likely is safer than cigarettes, but maybe you know, still has some harms to it. So yeah. I don't think that research has been done yet. Either. And there's also, you know, it's not that e-cigs are safe. Um, you know, there, these, there are chemicals in these things it's and flavors. Har- harm reduction. Is that it's not harm reduction yeah. for smokers, but it's harmful. I mean, if, to put stuff in your lungs. And it just you really don't want your middle schooler doing this. 
Well, also, I think it's really interesting to see how some states are looking at this, like New York is considering banning them. And, and it's become really international. Hong Kong is looking at restrict, banning the sales altogether. So Of jewel or of e-cigarettes? Of e-cigarettes, or? yeah. And, and so, San Francisco is banned flavored. Mm-hmm. So I think that this is, this is something that we've just seen the beginning of, really. My sort of my big question though is how is Scott Gottlieb getting away with this? <laughs> and he, well, and, you, know, you know, he was careful to say, and he's got the full backing of you know Health and Human Services Secretary Azar, who's also you know he was at the Federalist Society last week, being you know Mr. Secretary Free Market. Um, this is the kind of sort of heavy-handed regulation that it, that it's sometimes hard to imagine coming out of a Republican administration. Right. Well, yeah. they've been talking about Gottlieb for months, and because he's also doing things on on pro, uh, drug pricing and acts, uh, generic access to markets and some other things that are more technical that that he's yeah he did the menu labeling that right. had been floating around for years from the ACA I mean he's you know we've we've talked about him before I mean he's he's an outlier and, and, yet, and yet Trump he views him as a star I mean he's called him that on the world stage a lot so, a lot he, yeah. he brings him up a lot yes, well I, also Trump is not you know Trump is not a smoker Trump is right. not a pro alcohol a pro alcohol pro tobacco kind of person um Trump clearly is not a. I mean, I think even he would agree that he is a, not a model of great nutritional savvy. But I don't think he objects to the fact that the FDA commissioner wants people to be, you know, thinner and healthier. Um, yeah, he likes Gottlieb, and Gottlieb is just not what we thought we would be seeing at the FDA. And we sort of like wake up and rub our eyes on a weekly basis. No, I don't know. <laughs> I, when when he was named, I said, "You watch," because he's been there before. He knows how the the agency works. He worked with that. With, he worked with Azar before. Yeah, yeah. I'm, Although I'm he not, was. A Appointed before Azar. I'm surprised at how far he's gone, but I'm not surprised that he's doing stuff. All right. Well, now that the election results are for the most part settled, um, I want to talk a little bit about the prospects for Medicare for All. Anna, you you already brought this up. (laughs) Obviously, it can't pass while the Republicans control the Senate and Donald Trump is in the White House. But there's a pretty heated debate about whether or not the House should try to pass its own bill next year or the year after to send a message, as they say. Do we think it might happen? And if you were the Democrats trying to figure out strategy for 2020, do you think it should happen? I think I'm waiting to see what goes on. I mean, I think Nancy Pelosi will be speaker. Yes, I guess but, that's the first question: yes. who's going to be the speaker? Right. Of the I, House. I think she. I think she will be speaker. Um, but I. I don't. I'm waiting to sort of see how that plays out, what the demands are, um, who sides with who. Before I think I can really answer that question, um, because that seems Medicare for all seems to be there's there's climate change issues in there too, and and other other progressive agenda items. But I think that that um, Medicare for All is something that is going to be pushed for in some way um, as part of this leadership debate. I know there's plans to introduce um, some kind of updated legislation in January. I think that there's a real big push. Yes, because I guess the House bill and the Senate mm-hmm. bill are not the right. same. They're quite different. And I think there's a big push among progressive Democrats to get a vote on this. Uh, leadership is less inclined. Uh, they really feel like we're just at the starting gate of even trying to define what we mean by Medicare for all, how it will be. I think the progressive Democrats will see any kind of public option as sort of a cop-out. They want the, the whole deal. So this is going to be a really tricky decision for the Democrats. Um, they're looking at 2020. They've got to keep their eye on that ball, and they probably don't want to go too far down the line, especially leadership with Medicare for All, because it's unclear what that – you know, yes, it's popular, but when you start – 
uh, picking it apart, some of that popularity wanes. Um, you've got a lot of uh, independent voters who may not go for it. So it's it's really... and you got a lot of Democrats who got elected from yep. kind of marginal districts where they very particularly didn't endorse. Right, them. right. So I think it's kind of a uh, this is sort of a hackneyed cliche, but cliche, but kind of a political hot potato right now for Democrats, and they're going to have to be very, very careful with what they do. Because on one hand, it fires up the progressive base, but where did the Democrats win? I mean, they won in the suburbs. They won in sort of a more moderate... They um, won in the entirety of Orange County, California, right. which when I started covering Congress was where some of the most conservative Republicans Until in the Congress ago, came were, right? from. Yeah, that's uh, right. The, 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 you know, I mean, the, the, the Democratic win had, uh, of the House had multiple tiers. And part of it was in some districts, it was the progressives. And in some districts, it was the sort of disaffected swing voter suburbanite who might really, this might be a long-term realignment, but that long-term realignment might might be threatened by something over, you know, an overreach on health care. I mean, health care worked for the Democrats in the House. The Senate was a little more complicated. But as Anna said, it was mostly pre-existing conditions. It it's wasn't really Medicare for all. Right. And so the Democrats are facing, I mean, this is going to be, I think, something that we will be covering and watching pretty much 24-7 for the next two years. How do the Democrats, you know, square this circle? What does Medicare for all mean? How do you pay for it? How fast do you get there? Is it okay? Is it Medicare for all? I've also heard some Democrats talking about Medicare for more. Um, you'll, you hear a little bit of talk about Medicaid and the public option in, in, in a couple of states out west. I'm not convinced they'll actually do it. Nevada's looked at it. New Mexico's and we talked about it. it on the podcast, right? The the um, the Medicare buy-in, letting people buy into Medicare at sixty, at 60 at or fifty-five, 55 or fifty yeah. or whatever. Fifty-five is the the age you hear about the most, but there are various versions of that. Being able to use your ACA subsidy if you're eligible, that I think might be the easiest first step. You know, there is a structure of Medicare. People know what Medicare is, and you can that might be where the Democrats most sensibly go. But, you know, using Democrats insensibly in one sentence can be a dangerous activity. And, and as we just talked about, what, 10 whole minutes ago, Medicare is complicated. Yes. And there's a lot of private insurance that goes with it to make Medicare into Which people basically who are whole calling, package. Right. And people, many people who favor Medicare for all who think it means no insurance, no private insurance have, and the legislation would have no, our current Medicare system has a lot of private insurance that is part of it. Well, and don't forget, industry is very much kind of a mass against this and a lot of those that those industries That's an understatement. right yeah. are you know big donors so that also puts Democrats especially more established Democrats in kind of a, a difficult and decision and, and role that they have to play and you already saw ads against it this summer or the lead in this fall leading up to the house races and you saw Republican ads against it even in districts where the Democrats were not for it so a they thought it was a potent issue to, to well in the Trump administration I mean we saw Alex Azar and, and you right. know, Medicare director Seema Verma come out multiple times in multiple speeches you know that this is socialism and President Trump yeah and President right. Trump. But, but I mean I think those were the trial run messaging you know which yep. they're they're they were running ads in districts where that wasn't really the issue, and they were running it anyway. So they're beginning to get that message out that they will then amplify. Anyone who's studied the history of health policy, we've been hearing about government-run health care since at least the 1930s. I mean, not on we were none of us were alive in the 1930s. But we've all read books, and and that and has we'll been talk about and, them in a minute. right, and it and it has been. You know, it is what, you know, we sort of forget what all the problems with Obamacare. I mean, it was sort of amazing they passed it because for decades, government-run health care had been enough to kill any attempt to do that. And I think the big question is going to be whether Medicare for All, as we look at 2020, um, sort of how that's going to play out. Like, will this be something that 
becomes a litmus test for potential. Well, some candidates. people are already clearly positioning yeah. it to be. They yes. want it to be. Yeah. And that we but, know, but, we'll but know and no we'll know on November tenth or whatever. Yeah. Is that what a candidate that, winds up right. running on and, and could that backfire potentially? Well I mean what what makes my eyes cross about the whole Nancy Pelosi fight is that a lot of the progressives are mad at her because she is not a co-sponsor of the Medicare for All bill, though traditionally a speaker doesn't co-sponsor anything. But she's also not a supporter of Medicare for All because she's a deal cutter and a, you know, a compromiser and all these other things. And yet the people who are challenging her are people who are more conservative than she is. Um, so I keep looking at these progressives. I'm like, do you understand that if you oust her as leader, the person you're going to get is not going to be more likely to support your progressive values, but less likely to support your progressive values? And I haven't quite figured this out yet. Well, um, I also think that, you know, sort of who is the great, you know, voice for, for single-payer health care, it was Senator Kennedy in, in the 80s and 70s, 80s, uh, and, and early 90s, I guess. I mean, it's hard to figure out when he... Although, yeah, I think in, in, in the late 80s, late 80s he switched he was, to right, the, the employer mandate. Right. And in his version of a perfect world, he would have had it, but he actually you know, went on a more pragmatic course and, and you know, supported the Clinton health plan in the 90s and certainly, 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 you know, to his dying day, literally, supported literally the ACA and, and, you know, and... You know, I think his voice of wisdom would have been to his fellow progressives, you know, go slow, don't don't overreach. But that's an, we're already in a new era. Well, and Obama says, I mean, when you ask him, he said this more than once. If I were starting from scratch, we would have single payer, but we're not starting from scratch. Yeah, but his last one on the campaign recently, he says something a little more sympathetic. So I think people saw that as giving them cover. As Anna says, the, the first step is to see who the speaker is. And then the second step, well, right, I think we'll be watching this for the next two years. Okay, so that is the news for this week. It is time for our extra credit segment. This is normally where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. But today we're going to change things up a little for the holidays and suggest books that you or your loved ones, well, your loved ones who are interested in health policy, might want to read. And as usual, we will post our lists on the podcast page at khn.org. Some of these books are from this year and some are older but still relevant if you want to understand how health policy gets made. Uh, Anna, why don't you kick things off because I think you're going to start with the the biggest health policy book of the year. Right. Yes. And I think um, one most of us here read and loved um, Bad Blood by John Carreyrou at the Wall Street Journal. Um, it's the story, the inside story of Theranos, and Theranos was a um, yeah, very much was <laughs> was a company where Elizabeth Holmes, who um, who founded it, was trying to make blood testing a lot easier. No more needle draws. Um, she was afraid of needles, and so it would just be a, a more of a finger prick. Um, it you know, not to give it away, but you know that's a very hard thing to do. And um, you know she had. Some people that she was working with um, that seemed to have sort of led her down a path of a lot of um, a lot of fabrication, a lot of hiding of what was actually going on. Raised a lot um, of money. They raised a ton of money. I mean, they had people like um, the defense secretary James Mattis, like on their board and behind them. Um, so you know, there it's a it's a fascinating read. It really is entertaining. I stayed up late on nights when I should have been going to sleep um, reading it. It's a really easy read, yeah. I read it on an airplane. (laughs) I highly recommend it. Joanne, you were saying earlier that even even if you know the story and if you've been reading, you know, John's reporting in the Wall Street Journal, which is sort of what led to the book, you know, you pretty much knew the story. It's still amazing to read. It still pulls you in. It's a really great book. It's a really great book. 
All right, Stephanie. Um, the one I'm recommending is The Immortal Life of Henrietta Lacks uh, by Rebecca Sklute. Um This is not a new book. It, no, it is not a new book. Um, but it is an uh, amazing tale of um, a woman who had breast cancer and um, without her knowledge, the cells were taken and they were unusual because they actually divided and they could use them to do um, – all kinds of testing, and it took off, and um, they've become uh, basically a part of many, many kinds of things that have been developed, uh, but yet she didn't know. Her family never benefited from any of this, and um, now it's led to uh, sort of a uh, the, the family, look, some family members looking to get guardianship, raise questions about um, the use of information from patients without their knowledge, and kind of plays into what's going on now with a lot of the DNA and genetic testing, um, which I think makes it really relevant. Plus, it's a wonderful read. Also, there's a great HBO movie that Oprah Winfrey made. <laughs> I know. I'm going if, to if watch that this yeah, weekend. If you don't want to yes. read the book, there's a really good movie. But it's also The book really is excellent. Movie. Yeah. Go ahead. Julie wanted me to um, cite two of the books that we had been talking about. One um, is more historical and one is sort of, you know, what you deal with and as you interact with the healthcare system every day. Um, An American Sickness by Elizabeth Rosenthal is the, the more consumer-oriented book. And it really just guides you through money and healthcare and sort of sector by sector. And even if you know if if you're if you know healthcare, you'll still be carried along by this sort of, you know, her crescendo of more and more money. And then she has some solutions or partial solutions to how she thinks consumers can try to bring about change. If you don't know healthcare, it's a really good introduction. And if you do know healthcare, there's a different level. She still manages to make you mad. Yeah, I was just saying. Full disclosure, Libby is my boss, right. um, and but my, but my I, friend, but yes, but but the book is great. And actually, you know, obviously, I knew a lot of this stuff because again, a lot of it was based on some of the, the reporting that she did when she was at the New York Times. Um, but what really sort of struck me when I was reading it is not sort of the, the kinds of horrendous stuff that goes on, but how much it has grown so quickly. It's right. kind of like the tobacco stuff that it, it, you know, that a lot of this stuff has been going on for a long time, but really in the last five or 10 years, it has just multiplied. Yeah. I found that my personal favorite chapter, because it was the one I knew least about, was the medical devices one. And, and I won't bore anybody with the details of the various categories of devices. It was a pretty shocking 15 pages of that book. Um, and the other one that um, uh, we, I wanted to mention is The Heart of Power by David Blumenthal and James Marone. This is the only healthcare book that someone actually borrowed and didn't return, and I went out and got another copy. Although, if David and James are listening, and the first one was a hardcover, the second one, I did get a paperback. I have two <laughs> copies. <laughs> And, and it's it's a it's the history of each president, sort of the case studies, historical case studies of presidents and their attempts to fix health care, Republican and Democrat, because Nixon did some things, too. Um, it's funny. I often uh, and also sort of their personal stories and some of their personal health issues and how that uh, interwoven affected their thinking. It's quite readable. I, I use it as a reference book and you often find something isn't there. It's a great book. It's a wonderful book. But sometimes you know, like Medicare, Medicare got all the attention in 65. And in many ways, you know, Medicaid is really, really important nowadays. And if you try to go back to accounts of, of the, the Medicare, Medicaid years, you often don't find too much about Medicaid. So if maybe 
um, when they write the Obama chapter, they can have a lot of a Medicaid in it. Yes, that's right, because it ends it ends at the uh, with George W. Bush because they wrote it in two thousand and eight. I it was sort of I I I just love the sort of the way they did it that it's just kind of a different it's very narrative. Look. It's yeah. yeah, it's an easy book. To, it's an, it's not like a you know Bad Blood is almost a beach book. You know, <laughs> it's not quite that zippy, but it's a very readable book. It's a very readable narrative book. All right. Well, I have a couple of books too. For, the first one is sort of my favorite health policy book of all time, um, The Social Transformation of American Medicine by Paul Starr. And it's not zippy. Um, but, oh, my God, it, it, it just sort of if you if you really want to go back and see how things repeated themselves and how things evolved, um, you know, it, it's just it's an amazing book. He's updated it a couple of times. I don't think I've read actually the last update. Um, but it is just I, you know, I'm a. I, I love history, and this is obviously the basically the history of health policy and the history of you know of, as he says of American medicine and you know how sort of the hospital industry came to be what it is and the physician industry came to be what it is and it's just if you if you have not read it I just highly highly recommend it. Um, the other one that I want to recommend, um, which it, because I feel like it's worth reminding people is sick um, by Jonathan Cohen, who's a friend of mine. Um, and Jonathan wrote this book before the Affordable Care Act. And it was basically uh, intended to say, this is the mess that our health care system is in. Um, do we want to do something about it? That was effectively the message of the book. He, he went, it's, it's mostly the stories of a number of, of families in different parts of the country who are having different problems with the health care system. Um, but what struck me about it and why I went and sort of picked it up again uh, a couple of months ago was that Many of the things he describes in it are sort of still with us or they were gone for a while and now they're back with us. I mean, it was sort of it, it, it kind of reminds you this is what it was like before the Affordable Care Act. Um, and this is increasingly what it's getting like again, even though the Affordable Care Act is still there. Some of these problems um, either never got solved or got solved and we've backtracked. And I think in that sense, it's a, it's a, for those who sort of don't remember life before the ACA, which granted to us doesn't seem that long ago, but to I know to a lot of Sort of younger scholars, it is. I think it is well worth a read. Anybody else have anything they want to? I did have one other yes. book. Um, it's Dreamland: The True oh, Tale right. of, Ameri oh, right. Right. We, of America's Opiate Epidemic. Um, it's by Sam Quinones. If you really want to take an extremely deep dive into many aspects of the opioid epidemic, you're going to look at doctors and drug companies and Mexican. Um, drug dealers and you know focusing on one town um and there's you know and also people who who are addicted to opiates it's a great read it's um there are a lot of tidbits in there that i i remember finding just fascinating um as sort of a health policy wonk like when you figure out i mean we all know that the sacklers are um very you know they they're Big with they are involved in Purdue, and Purdue is who made OxyContin, and that's how they made a ton of money. But actually, the, it goes back even further, and Arthur Sackler's um, sort of was the, I guess, godfather of modern like pharmaceutical advertising. And there are just a lot of fascinating tidbits in there, and a lot of um, great information, and it told in a very like, a very readable way. Yeah, it's another some other must. It's the single. I think it's the single best book about. It. I mean, I don't think there's anything that comes close if you want to find out about the origins of the opioid crisis and how complicated it is because this is not 
it's not just Purdue. It's not just heroin. It's not, and it's a, that book really weaves together an awful lot of issues in a really nice narrative. It's it's an enjoyable read. Another one that's an enjoyable read. Well, that's one I haven't. read. You can't finish it like on one to. airplane though. No, <laughs> unless you go around the world three or four times. <laughs> Lots for people to choose from. Um, That is our show for this holiday week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also appreciate it if you left us a review on iTunes. That helps other people find us, too. Also, as usual, you can email us your questions or comments, and please get your questions in for our Ask Us Anything. We are at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. I'm at Joanne Kennan. At Steph Armour One. At Anna Edney. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.